Hello and welcome to Nudge, a podcast that is packed with real-world examples that you can apply to your work. Now here's a question for you. How many customers have you spoken to in the last week? In fact, how many customers have you spoken to in the last year? Chances are it's less than you'd like. One study by Forrester found that 74% of marketers state that they don't speak to customers enough. Personally, this is something I've really struggled with. I haven't known what to ask customers in interviews. I haven't known how many I should speak to. So I just didn't bother interviewing them. It's something I needed to do. I knew I needed to do it, but I just didn't know how. To help out, I'm chatting to Louis Grenier. Louis is a bit of an expert when it comes to customer interviews. It's something he spent a lot of time working on and writing about while at Hotjar. And it's something that he advises people about on his podcast, Everyone Hates Marketers. So to kick off the discussion, I asked Louis something I've wanted to know for years. How many customers should I speak to? The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. I can't tell you exactly how many until you know that some of them are part of a congruent, a congruent group of people that you can obsess over. So it's kind of a cop out, but you need to develop taste and experience to have the intuition to know that, okay, those five people, they all seem to be part of the same group. You need to do as many as you can in order to have, to hear the same thing over and over again. So once you reach a certain group uh, of people, after a while, you're going to talk to people, they're going to say the same thing. You're going to be able to even finish their sentences before they are. And once you have that, then you know you have some sort of congruence and you have enough data. You can always fucking interview one more, one more. But you'll never have perfect data, never have 100% of the insights. You need to make peace with 80%. So once you have five or six people who are part of this congruent group, you can finish your sentences, you have enough to fucking go for it. And then you can like improve as you go. But you will, you will very unlikely learn anything groundbreaking uh, past that number. But it's not, I'm not saying you should stop at five interviews. I'm saying you should stop at five interviews that are congruent, that feel congruent. And that's a different answer. But just going to say something here. 
It's a very big, big thing. Access is so important. And by access, I mean, if you are your own customer, that's a great fucking thing to do. And, you know, when you ask the question to Seth Godin, for example, asking about interviews and stuff, he's going to brush it off. I did that and he's brushing it off because he's never done that in his life. Um, he's more of an observer, like an observer of the world. He's more an intuitive guy. He's more someone who has problem himself and then find the solutions and then market to other people. And so you need to develop both, I believe. You need, that's why I'm mentioning the word taste. You need to develop taste and experience for it. And that's not something that can be taught like that. It's not just as analytical as doing five customer interviews and then so be it. It, it, it takes experience to start to recognize the insight that they give you that are more important than others. For Hotjar, the big insight that I just like, I knew that was it, was the fact that they all use traditional web analytics tools like Google Analytics. And that that was causing the pain. That was the status that we'll fight against. And then everything else was secondary. So it's not really about setting a number of customers that you need to talk to. It's more about talking to enough customers so you'll start to hear the same themes over and over again. It's about getting to the point where you can start to finish the customer's sentences. For companies that sell to a very niche market, the chances are that around seven interviews should be enough. But if your audience is broader, if you're looking to target, say, digital marketers, for example, then you'll need to speak to many more people. One of the things all entrepreneurs must do when they start a new business is to talk to their potential customers. And Louis has an interesting theory about successful entrepreneurs. He reckons that your chance of success is much higher if you are already your customer, if you're the type of person who would buy the product you're creating. One of the reasons is it'll make it much easier for you to find people to interview. But it needs a bit of time to have the confidence and experience to know, ah, this is it. This is, this is like, that's, there is something. So this is why when you want to start a business or even when you have business and if you're not the customer, it, it is going to be more difficult. So yes, interviews, observation, uh, just being curious about the world. That's my biggest, one of the, my biggest issue with marketing. It's marketing. It's all about your fucking people. You don't matter. The only thing that matters is their perception of you. You can't fucking do shit. They, they decide everything. And so, yes, you can come up with a radical different, a differentiated product, but at the end of the day, what matters is how they see it and how they use it and how they buy it and how they perceive you. So it's a very, uh, it's not selfish. It's a generous act. And, and, and once you flip, flip the thinking this way, things get easier. But most of us aren't entrepreneurs starting a new business. Most of us work at established companies that already have customers, and we need to find ways to help that business grow. How should we find out more about our customers? I asked Louis. Yeah, I would say stop, stop looking at Google Analytics and looking at SEO reports all fucking day and Excel spreadsheet and start talking to your fucking customers. Um, the reason why talking to customers and observing them is so important is because it's going to create aha or some of aha moments that you'll never have by just looking at reports uh, given by your analytics team um it, there's just something human that you can't fucking replicate just one person that you talk to that is part of your interview uh, that's part of your group just one of them is going to give you more insight more energy uh, than anything else you can do because you're going to be able to picture that person the next time you write a message and and you're going to be able to remember what they say to you so like stop, like get out of your, get, 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 um, get down from your high horse 
stop thinking you're important because you're not. Your market is, is the only thing that matters. Uh, read psychology uh, psychological book. Uh, stop, stop thinking that uh, marketing is changing. It's not. Uh, yeah, you have technology change and new channels, but the, the same thing happened. The same psychological bias are at play. Uh, the human brain has not evolved in the last 50 years. It never, in fact, it's never really evolved since the last uh, few millennials. Um, so fucking deal with that. And um, once you do that, I think once, you know, that was the, the, the biggest change in my career was when I finally made peace with that and told myself, I actually have enough foundations and enough understanding uh, of people to be able to see anything coming and to be able to basically do anything I want in the marketing world, whatever happens, whatever new technology, whatever new medium, whatever new trend, I'm at peace and I'm tranquil about it because I know that I have the first principles laid down and so I can adapt. I can learn new shit, no problem. If like Clubhouse is taking over, I freaking be there, no problem. I don't care because I have to layer down. Us marketers are constantly told that the consumer is changing, that we need to keep up to speed with the latest cohort of customers. But the human brain really hasn't changed in the last 10,000 years. Yes, behaviours, attitudes, preferences have changed. But like Louis says, the first principles behind why we act just aren't very different. Take B.F. Skinner's studies on conditioning. It was his studies, published in his book Behaviour of Organisms, that first highlighted how humans prefer variable rewards. This book was published way back in 1938, decades before millennials, Gen Z, TikTok and Clubhouse. And yet that book holds the secret to many of today's most popular apps. In his experiments with rats, B.F. Skinner documented how we're more likely to act if we receive a reward. No real surprises there. But his crucial insight was that we'd be even more compelled to act if the reward was variable rather than consistent. Give rats sugary water every time they press a button and they'll press it consistently for a while before getting bored. But give rats a variable reward after, say, every 4th, 10th, 11th and 20th press and continue to randomly give that reward, then they'll get addicted. They'll get hooked and press it again and again far more than consistent rewards. That preference for variable rewards was discovered back in 1938, but it's the exact reason why TikTok is popular today. Like most social networks, they get users hooked on variable rewards. Rather than show similar videos with every scroll, the TikTok algorithm is optimized to show you a Goldilocks level of good, bad, funny and interesting videos with just enough variety to keep you coming back. So rather than spending your career trying to keep up to speed with the latest trends, take a leaf out of TikTok's book and try and get the basics right first. Going back to customer interviews, I wanted to ask Louis about focus groups. It's something I've heard him criticise in the past, saying it was too prone to bias and poor results. So I asked what he'd say to listeners who use focus groups regularly. Focus group stuff, I mean, it's better than doing nothing, I'll be honest. Um, I, I know that Mark Ritson advocates for focus groups and I think it's they are pretty good, but oh yeah, focus groups have massive issues. I would rather talk to people one-on-one. Focus groups... Uh, creates 
uh, biases as soon as you introduce more people in the room uh, people uh, statuses will be at play people want to be seen smarter than they are people will be uh, some people will shut up some people will say something to be seen as better smarter whatever so it's a risky thing but honestly I mean, if I had to choose between someone looking at Google Analytics every day and someone looking at focus group every week, I would pick someone saying a focus group for sure. Um, I think the big mistake to avoid overall, if I had to pick one thing when talking to customers through focus group or whatever, or interviews, is to never, ever, ever ask them about the future. If you don't ask them about the future, you're fine. Ask them about the last few days, the last few weeks, why do they take decision or the type of things they did that they can remember quite well and you'll be fine. Uh, I, I fucking hate that quote from Henry Ford. Uh, you know, if you had built faster, uh, if I had asked what people wanted, uh, I would have built faster horses for two reasons. One, because it, it, it's not that what research is about. It's never about asking what people what they want. It's just looking back at the past. And two, because he never fucking said it. It's not just customers who are bad at predicting the future. It's businesses too. In a series of articles published in Foresight, researcher Steve Moldridge revealed the inaccuracies in business forecasting. He studied eight supply chain companies encompassing 300,000 real-life forecasts. These were forecasts used to run businesses, so they should be pretty accurate. But the researcher found that a shocking 52% of forecasts were less accurate then no change forecasts. In other words, the majority of forecasts created by experts were completely wrong. The businesses would have been more accurate if they predicted no change whatsoever in the future, or if the forecasts simply weren't made at all. These mistakes won't be a surprise to many listeners. We've spoken before on the show about how a number of biases can harm our predictions. So we shouldn't ask customers about the future because we know that will lead to biased results and we probably shouldn't use focus groups either. But what should we ask customers? Here's what Louis has to say. Yeah, so you basically, the way I see it is like the rock, uh, the way I teach it is like through a little story, the rock and the bridge. You have a massive boulder rolling down a hill coming right at you. You have a heavy backpack on you and the only way to survive is either to uh, to cross a bridge, but it's fucking broken, or to swim on the other side, or take a fucking helicopter, and then you reach uh, the goal you want uh, towards the end. Um, the boulder is the triggers, is the reason why people act. If you don't have a fucking boulder arriving at your at fast speed, customers are not going to act. It's just going to be a job, not a job to be done. That's super important. People forget that. They forget that people don't take decisions because of the goodness of their heart or just because they chose to. They take decisions for specific reasons. Because they saw an ad, because they saw someone else use it, because a friend told them, because um, they are really in pain right now and they need to solve it, because there's a conference coming out tomorrow and and you want to sleep well tonight. And therefore, you're looking for uh, ways to to really sleep well. But uh, your husband isn't a snorer. And, and so that's going to be a trouble. So the boulder is the trigger. Like you need to understand trigger, which is what is, uh, tell me about the first time when you ever thought about potentially using a solution like ours, which is kind of the trigger question. You want to understand the full story from the very first time they had this thought to all the way to buying. And so it's basically the rock and the bridge as the story. You want to understand all the, all the parts. The second part is the backpack. The backpack is kind of the pain. It's the thing that doesn't make it easy to cross that bridge. There's always something that is like, hugely painful 
there is always kind of a, something in their mind that is bugging them, something that prevents them from from uh, from buying. And so, what I would ask him is is uh, what what was the biggest issue, you know, preventing them from reaching that goal, like crossing that bridge? Why did you think that uh, that solution was was it for you? Um, you know, that kind of question on the pain. Uh, what was the biggest problem that you were hoping to solve? That kind of stuff. And then I would ask them about the way he would cross that bridge or reach that goal. I would ask them, what uh, alternatives did you look into before uh, buying from us? What 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 have you looked at? And here I'm not looking at direct competitors. I'm thinking of alternatives in general. When you have a conference coming up tomorrow and you can't sleep and you're thinking of solution, you don't look at all the brands of sleeping pills. You look at sleeping pills, uh, sleeping mask, uh, blackout curtains, uh, asking your your husband to go to the Indiana room, um, maybe pulling a... a uh, doesn't uh, not sleeping, you know, those are alternatives and people fucking forget that. And again, this is why you need to obsess over your market because once you understand the type of things they consider in their, consider, uh, in their consideration, uh, consideration set, excuse me, they tend, you then, then realize that you're not as important as you think you are. And then you want to understand um, why, what was the actual goal? Like what, what is it? Height status? Was it control? Was it, uh, all of that, all of the above, was it was it to make themselves like good in front of their boss? And you, so you you should ask them, um, uh, what's the one thing that you're able to do now that you weren't able to do before, thanks to um, this, this solution, uh, for example? Uh, what can you do now that you couldn't do before? All of that. So you want to talk about the goal, like the the, the thing that was the end, at the end of the bridge. But then you have a question that I've never seen being asked before in interviews and whatnot. I use it a lot now with clients and, and in the radical differentiation thing. I would ask them, what cliches or what, what are the kind of stuff that you hate about the industry or, but, or did you hate about that category? Tell me all the things that, you, that fucking piss you off. Um, and so like if I, were, if I were obsessing about a marketing podcast in general, I would ask them, like, what do you hate the most about marketing podcasts in general? Don't be afraid to go into caricature. Like, oh, they tend to have long super ads that are boring. Uh, the host doesn't really listen to the guest, blah, blah, blah. And that question is like, to me, is the chair on the cake that really enables you to, to come up with ways to engineer your product so that, and your message and your entire marketing and your entire experience to make sure that, um, to make sure that you take some risk and remove shit that people ex- tend to expect from a category, but you're going to stop doing or, enhance or whatnot so that's the question i never really see being asked but that's a super fun one just want to do a quick recap there because there's some really solid advice so when speaking to customers you should ask five different types of questions the first is what's the trigger what caused them to act ask what first caused you to look for this solution the second type is around what's the pain you should be asking What's the main barrier to achieving your goal? Thirdly, ask about the journey they took. Ask questions like, what alternatives did you look for? Fourth is what's their goal? Here you can ask, what can you do now that you couldn't do before? And finally, what did you hate about the category? That last one is important as it helps you find a way to position your brand in a radically different way, to fight against the status quo. To finish up, I asked him what companies he admires, which companies have followed this advice, spoken to the customer and found a way to be radically differentiated. 
Not in general. I mean, in any industry, you'll find some companies that have a small market and are taking some risk in some way, uh, shape or form. I mean, it's very difficult to pick. Uh, it's not the category industry I would admire. It's I, I would admire certain like people, mavericks and risk takers who are who are willing to go all in and who know, understand intu- that process intuitively and know they can't be all things for people. So when it comes to like any industry you can pick, like there's a, this burger joint in Dublin that only offers one burger. They don't do chicken burgers or anything like that. Uh, only one type of fries, only one type of drink. Their business, their menu fits on a business card. They've opened a few more restaurants like that with the same concept. And I admire those type of people. Like what I'm trying to teach here is not for big brands because once you've crossed the chasm, once you have enough people, what matters is scaling and distinctiveness and building mental availability, which means being seen by as many people as, as possible. Your product doesn't have to be different anymore. All you want is to be remembered and being first in mind. And so differentiation doesn't matter as much. It does matter in some to some extent, like it, it does help sometimes for people to make a decision. But overall, what I'm trying to teach here is for the 99.9% of companies that will never cross the chasm and are in the first part and in consultants and freelancers who need, who need a way to re-engineer their services uh, uh, so that they, they radically stand out. So I admire those people who are taking a leap of faith and doing it because the only way uh, to, to taking risk is not um, standing, standing out is not risky. Not staying out is risky, and that's the, the the mindset shift. You know, it's you must you must life is fucking short. You must go for it all in. That restaurant Louis mentions is a restaurant called Bunsen Burger. They started back in 2013, and they chose to be radically different. Presumably, they spoke to their customers and asked what they hated about modern day restaurants. You can imagine customers talking at length about how menus are too long, about how there's too much choice and how overwhelming it can be. So Bunsen took this as an opportunity to stand out. They created a menu that fits on a business card with really just two options, hamburger or hamburger with cheese, plus fries and a soda or a milkshake. That standing out really worked. The company now has eight restaurants spread across Ireland with plans to create even more. Hopefully you've all enjoyed listening to Louis today. I certainly have. And if you've liked this episode, then you'll love Louis's podcast. Search Everyone Hates Marketers wherever you listen to podcasts and go and give it a listen. Now, last week I mentioned my new fortnightly email newsletter called Nudge Tips. Every other week, I send out some of the best marketing nudges I've seen in the wild. And if you sign up, you'll learn about lots of things like how a Reddit post that I advertised on doubled my listenership for one episode and how Wix convinced me to buy a new email domain with a really interesting nudge. So don't miss out. Sign up by clicking the link in the show notes or head to nudgepodcast.com and you'll get that email every two weeks. I'll be back again in a fortnight with another episode. We have got a brilliant two-part episode with Rory Sutherland coming up soon, so make sure to subscribe so you don't miss that. Anyway, thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge.